This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles. I'm Samuel Mann. I'm here in Dunedin. Looking out of the office in the spare bedroom, looking out across Sawyer's Bay, I'm with Mawera Karatai, who's in Whakatani. Kira Mawera. And from Tokyo, Brian Acock. Welcome, Brian. Thanks very much for having me, Sam. What can you see out the window? Uh, well, Mount Fuji today, uh, which is rare. It uh, tends to be hidden most of the time under the clouds, but uh, yeah, we actually have a nice view of it today. So, uh, other other than the the other apartment buildings and trains and whatnot, above them all, I can see Fuji off in the distance. So that's a nice start to the day. Is the city quieter than it usually is? Yes, considerably. Um, We've been quite fortunate in Japan. We haven't been on lockdown the way most people have. Um, you know, the the number of coronavirus cases have been pretty low here, uh, or at least the numbers that they're counting. Um, so it's been a voluntary uh, kind of social distancing um, request from the government. Um, it, it, it's gotten increasingly stern, Um uh, uh, there was the threat uh, about a week ago that, uh, hey, if you guys can't stay home on your own, then we will issue a lockdown order. So more and more people are, are heeding the uh, recommendation. Um, but that said, um, I moved house a week ago. So, you know, we're still out and about. I mean, um, I went to I actually went to campus yesterday uh, just for a couple hours. Um, wasn't weren't very many people there, but but still spent a little time on campus. So, so we're not completely shut down here the way that a lot of places are. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui kia koutou, ho. Hope you're all having the best day in your beloved beautiful bubbles. I hope that you are enjoying all the opportunities that this time and that this day is offering to you and giving to you and that you are giving to yourself and all the other beautiful life forms around you. Something that I've been really enjoying delving into for myself today is opportunities that we have right now to really liberate ourselves from the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful constraints of the conceptual universe that our evolved mind loves to create for us. And we've talked a lot in my previous bubble visions about all the 
wonderful facets of our living toolkit and how we can use them in different ways to feel really good, as good as we possibly can, and just make the most of this time together. So in terms of our beautiful, evolved brain and the wonderful tool that we all know and appreciate it to be, one of the great skills that our brain has is conceptualizing and we conceptualize all aspects of our perceived reality including ourselves and this means that our sense of identity often is based on concepts of who we are, stories from the past, concepts of who we are, our visions for the future and this time in our beautiful beloved bubbles really offers us an opportunity to let go of a lot of those conceptualized identities that we've created for ourselves, and I'm sure like me we have created for those around us too and when we start to take a wee step back which I love to do as we all know by now and have a bit of a big picture overview of our glorious reality what we see is that using this wonderful living toolkit in a bit of a different way, accepting and appreciating that the mind loves to conceptualize for us and allowing that, accepting that, appreciating that. But with the wider skills of our consciousness, just taking the time and the space to appreciate ourselves and those around us in the present moment as perfect, as triumphs of nature's work and of constantly evolving and changing beautiful, infinitely connected living beings. And when we do start to loosen our grip on those conceptualized identities, the most amazing things can occur. So I've had a wonderful time today doing some filming with my partner for my Orkanoi online work that I'm doing for the education department at Orokanoi where I've been for the last 10 and a half years and making some perches for our chocks which has been very exciting so they can have a lovely time perching in their Hey Hey HQ and going and hunter gathering some milk and cheese from a farm that we live close to and all this time I've been working towards letting go of those conceptualized identities for myself and for him so that we can really make the most of this time together working closely together and also feeling and growing the spaciousness between us and I think particularly at this time there is this really interesting mix of a sense of enmeshment with that construct of the human world and the urgency that goes along with that alongside this really interesting juxtaposition of spaciousness and distance from that human world. So I think it's important at this time to really give ourselves a break and make the most of the freedom that is here for us always and particularly therapeutically at this time. So I hope that you can really enjoy this time caring for yourself and caring for those around you taking a bit of a step back from those conceptualizations of the human mind and the human world 
and just really appreciating and enjoying each other as unique living beings, as triumphs of nature. And I'm really looking forward to having some more time with you tomorrow. So thank you all for being born. Thank you all for adding your unique magic to this world. Thank you for aiding in the constant evolution and change and transformation of our beautiful world. We're so lucky to have you here. Thank you. Kakite. Thank you, Tahu. So how are we all looking after ourselves? Yeah, we're uh, trying to stay in as best we can. Um, you know, again, we're not ter- completely locked down here in Japan. Uh, but, um, you know, as, as a family, we're just trying not to go out more than we have to. Try to buy groceries in, in more bulk than we used to. And uh, avoiding the trains when we can and those kinds of things. Um, that's really the best we can do. Is, is the messaging about that you will be going into lockdown or that you've managed to avoid it or, or how, how is that being played out? Uh, yeah, so um, until now, um, we've avoided it and the governor of Tokyo and then the prime minister of Japan have both said repeatedly that they would rather not have to lock down the whole, uh, the whole city or the whole country. But um, if people don't stay home and if the numbers keep going up, then they'll have to. So, um, it seems to be kind of their way of, of putting pressure on people to just uh, social distance and self-quarantine as best they can on their own um, without having to do the lockdown. And, and by kind of repeatedly coming on television and telling people what will happen if the numbers keep going up, they're, they're hoping that people will just do it on their own. And, and they have been for the most part, I think. It's pretty hard to maintain a social distance, a physical distance on those trains. It is. Um, so, uh, again, people are uh, so schools are out. Schools have been out. Um, so Japan, we, we normally have a school holiday, a spring holiday for most of March, uh, say for universities and for a week or two for high schools and, and younger kids. Um, they at the end of February, they announced that schools would be shut for the whole of March. So the schools have been closed. Um, all month, which certainly takes uh, some pressure off of things like the trains. Um, a lot of people have been trying to work from home, those that are able. Um, and uh, the universities, which should have been starting back this week, uh, the beginning of April is the beginning of our school year. Um, they've all either gone online or pushed back their start dates until May. Um, one university where I teach a couple of classes, uh, they have uh, pushed back their start date till April 30th and then decided after that, that they would just on April 30th, they'll just start everything online. Uh, so the first term will be all online. Um, so everybody's making adjustments and trying to, again, take pressure off of those trains. Like even, so I went to the campus yesterday for just for a couple hours um, where normally I would take a train, which is about a three minute train ride, five minute train ride. I, I made the 30 minute walk instead of getting on the train. So, um, you know, people are doing things like that. I think riding bikes more and just, again, trying without being locked down, trying to social distance on their own. Just to clarify, your school year starts now. Yes. Yeah. So the Japanese school year is a year round um, and it starts April 1st and ends March 31st. So um, for for all ages. 
so but again they're they haven't started back now public schools for high schools and below are uh still out of school and universities are kind of adapting as they go is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Well, hello there, everyone, in your bubbles. Uh, Liesl here, uh, coming live, well, live-ish at you. <laughs> Alive, that's always a good start, um, from my bubble. Uh, and today I felt like talking a little bit about the food situation right because we know before uh, the lockdown occurred that everybody got a little little crazy um, not everyone but there was a lot of buying food and um, 
That was quite an interesting sort of phenomena to kind of witness, I guess, um, in terms of what it was that was going on. Like, why, why did we need to go and buy a whole lot of food when we were being told that, you know, food wasn't really going to be an issue, um, that we'd have access to it and uh, it wasn't going to run out anytime soon. And I wonder what that was all about. And it's kind of fascinating when we sort of know everyone else is doing something and then we feel that even if we don't kind of necessarily even agree with it, we think, oh, well, maybe I need to do it too because I don't want to miss out. And I think that probably prompted some of the sort of responses. But also, I think there's something about feeling like you're in control when you're, when you're able to do something positive and, you know, stock up the cupboards with food feels like a positive, proactive kind of thing to do uh, when you're being told that there's an imminent sort of crisis. Um, but it, it kind of sort of has that also sort of effective uh, kind of impacting on everybody else as well. Like we're, we're all in this together and um, by sort of buying up lots of food, some people missed out and some people are missing out. So I guess that brings me to, you know, now that we are in this space, this lockdown space, I wonder what's happening to all that food. Um, and <laughs> do we have enough? Do we have enough food? And what kind of food did we buy? Because I think this is really kind of interesting too. Are you the person that needs to get the chocolate biscuits, uh, the chips, the the sweet treats, the savoury treats, the 10 cans of uh, Nestle's Reduced Cream and onion soup mix just in case there's a crisis where you definitely need Kiwi Dip because everyone knows Kiwi Dip solves most problems, most life problems. And hey, if we're going to be locked in for a few weeks, then there'll be some there'll be some times where Kiwi Dip is uh, necessary. So, are you that person that gets all the treats because you know that you're going to feel a little bit down, you're going to feel maybe a little bit cooped up, you need the treats? Or are you that person that goes, you know what, I'm going to home cook everything, I'm going to buy the staples, it's all going to be from scratch, um, no treats in my cupboard because I'm using this as an opportunity to uh, go simple, to live life um, through sort of Zen practices of, uh, of <laughs> fasting and, um, and not having chocolate biscuits in the pantry. Uh, yeah, those may be two ends of a scale, quite quite extreme ends of a scale maybe, and there's probably plenty of us that sit somewhere in the middle. But um, I'm, I'm just reflecting on this post-delicious pumpkin soup lunch that I just whipped up from, from scratch and um, feeling kind of smug and proud of myself that I made some soup. I mean, is that ridiculous? Because we should just be making soup anyway. Like, what is... What has our lives become? We're so dependent on things in cans and pre-made and purposed for us, you know, that we've sort of almost forgotten that actually this is quite a simple thing that we can do for ourselves and it doesn't have to be over the top and it doesn't have to be extreme. Um, we can bake ourselves some biscuits if we really want them and it's a little bit like the practice of baking them um, kind of makes the end result more satisfying but it also makes us think about well do I really want some biscuits because I'll have to make them in order to get them so you know we just sort of take that moment to to think it through and uh, I saw a great little uh, clip on Facebook this morning that was sort of doing the rounds of someone uh, telling their, their daughter that 
there was going to be no access to McDonald's, KFC, Chinese food, etc. And the little girl is just beside herself, just wailing every time another fast food outlet is shut down in her mind. She just can't handle it. And um, yeah, that was interesting too. Just just pause for a moment on the food front, have a think. And um, that's where I'm going to leave you today. Hope your bubble is operating well. Take care of yourselves because this is tough stuff. You're doing well though. Hang in there. See you soon. So you've just moved from Nagoya to Tokyo. Yeah, just in the past in the middle week. of a pandemic. Yeah. In my defense, the plans were well laid before the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, it's uh, those those are hard things to uh, to change, really. Once you know, I, I mean, we had actually signed a lease on this apartment in February. And um, as I mentioned, the Japanese school year starts the 1st of April. So that's when my new teaching position here in Tokyo started. So I said, well, we've got to move then in late March. And, uh, oh, hey, now there's a pandemic. But, you know, we've still got an apartment to move into and a job to start. So here we are. So where have you moved to in terms of your work? Uh, So I'm teaching. So I'm, I'm I'm. doing my PhD at uh, International Christian University, which is ICU uh, here in Tokyo. And I have uh, two part-time teaching at uh, two different universities here, Kaysen University and Oberlin University. What are you teaching? Uh, I'm teaching English at both of those uh, schools, but I'm actually, my my PhD is in international law on, focused on human rights and refugees. And you corrected me last time I discussed it with you when I called it climate change refugees. But they're not quite climate refugees, are climate change refugees, are they? No, uh, that's uh, and that's exactly what my dissertation is about. Uh, so by definition, climate change can't, someone who's displaced because of climate change doesn't fit the definition of a refugee um, in legal terms. So, um so that is the question. What 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 do we? How do we classify them, and how are their rights protected? So, um, somebody who fits the definition of a refugee has certain legal protections in international law. Uh, somebody who's displaced by climate change, we're trying to figure out how the law protects them or doesn't, and and how it should or could. Are we seeing COVID refugees? Ignoring the fact that the refugees is not the right word? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. As a matter of fact, my supervisor, I'm quite an- anxious to read the article um, that my, my supervisor, um, Professor Osama Arakaki, is writing on. Um, he's, he's writing on that very topic, on uh, the, the, the relationship between COVID and, and a, a global pandemic like this and um, international law. Um, particularly as concerning protect the protection of human rights. So um, it's interesting, you know, so many countries have essentially shut down their borders, which seems like a prudent thing to do. Um, I, I mean, New Zealand is essentially closed off to the rest of the world temporarily. Um, but then there there are legal questions as to whether or not they actually can do that. Um, so, for example, um, one um, one aspect of international law is that 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 all people have the right to seek asylum. 
Um, so it doesn't mean they, they don't have, the, they're not guaranteed to be granted asylum, but they do have the right to seek it, right? So if I need to flee my home or, or, or my country of residence um, in search of um, asylum, another country can't turn me away at the border. They're required to at least hear my case, right? So it's just not as simple as we're just going to shut down the borders. There, there are legal questions to be asked. Um, again, I think most people are, are happy to ignore that for the time being, but um, it's still a question worth asking. One of the practicalities is that there are people, well, New Zealanders for, for, for a start, who are not necessarily trapped in a country, but they can't get home. Mm -hmm. the, the airline routes, and in particular the, the transit that you need to, to get to New Zealand from pretty much anywhere, um, isn't available. So right. I know of people who are in various places who would dearly love to come home but can't get home. That must be put. That, I know it's they're probably not in the state of of those people seeking asylum, but it must be getting close. Well, it's still um, you know it might be a slightly different question, but again, I think it's an important question because we're talking about people's basic human rights. So, in the the, the world order as it is, uh, the the global system that we have. Uh, states are responsible for uh, ensuring the protection of the rights of their citizens, right, and their residents. Um, so, who's responsible for who's responsible for ensuring that the human rights of a citizen of New Zealand are protected if they are trapped in Italy, right? If they can't get out of Italy right now, is it Italy's responsibility? Is it the European Union's responsibility, or does New Zealand have some sort of extra judicial, extra um, jurisdictional authority to assert protection into Italy? Right. Um, I mean, but th th those are gray areas. Those are debatable and you know areas of of discussion. But um, it is, I think, an, an interesting area. Um, you know, I, I don't want to trivialize the, the sadness of this or the, the, the gravity of what's happening, but um, from an academic or intellectual perspective, they're, they're interesting questions. Um, you know, I, I don't know of any citizens of New Zealand who are having their human rights abused in Italy, but um, the potential is certainly there. And you have to think that uh, a host country, as in most cases, will be more likely to show favorable treatment towards its own citizens than it will towards foreigners stuck there. Um, so what, what happens when resources are tight and they say, oh, actually, no, we can't give you services because you're not one of us, you know. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. That's one of the problems, I think, for um, people, you know, we live in New Zealand and we extend what we call manaki tanga, which is our, um, the way that we care for other people, we extend that to everyone in our country and everyone who comes to our country. And and when you're when you're from this little isolated island series of islands on the other side of the world, it never occurs to you that you won't get that elsewhere because it's just how we always do it. So it's um, and I think that there are reports of 
um, people in places like India um, who are really struggling to get the support that they need at the moment to, they can't get home to New Zealand and they can't get the support that they need there. Uh, and and the frustration that they're feeling, um, I, I can't even imagine it. I can't imagine what it would be like. But yeah, we're we're so lucky, and we're so lucky here uh, with our isolation and um, the way that we are, just naturally as New Zealanders. Rahui images by Andy Thompson, providing us with daily inspiration through the camera lens. See Andy's pictures on Andy Thompson Photography NZ.co.nz. Good everybody. This is Andy Thompson for COVID-19 Rahui Images blog, and this is for the 31st of March, and I have titled this 31, the last day of March, and how March has been so significantly different for all New Zealanders and across the world for many, many people. In fact, it was the uh, last day of Otago Polytechnic now turning into the next day into Otago Polytechnic Limited, which I've worked for for in my 20th year but also as a photographer and sitting in my bubble online it's amazing how I reflect back over this month and how it's been tumultuously different uh, for many many people and so uh, walking around my local area staying in my bubble um, I was thinking about what I should photograph today and so 31 <laughs> kind of stuck kind of struck me really as the key number and so I went around all the neighborhood looking for 31s on letterboxes um, and with Molly tethered to my camera pack um, we walked in all sorts of different directions around the local area trying to find these 31s and uh, yeah you find lots of um, lots of letterboxes that are pretty stock standard so it's quite challenging as a photographer to make them look good uh, and it was a really dull day so um, I stuck to uh, black and white in the end um, the cover photo is my favorite because it is rustic and uh, kind of rough which is really what I was after um, but um, uh, I'm this this blog is around monochromes and in regards to a photography tip uh, did you know 98% of your eyes, um, the rods in the back, are black and white? You can only see that much. And then 2% um, are what called cones, and that's what sees colour. So no wonder, no wonder black and white uh, looks quite, um, makes sense to us when we see an image, because we don't actually see, most of us don't actually see in black and white. And also we have a history. Uh, if you look back in the 50s and the 60s, there's a plethora of images that were presented in black and white. So black and white actually makes sense to us when we look, to, look at it. But if you think about it logically, it's not really, uh, life is not in black and white. It's all in colour that we see. So um, sometimes with images, you might produce an image and it looks really flat. You've taken it in colour. Um, you've considered that oh, you really liked it but sometimes you can save an image by turning it into a monochrome that doesn't mean that you can save every image into monochrome uh, but it's quite a good thing to play around with so consider looking at some other photos or images that didn't really work and um, try to turn them into uh, black and whites or monochromes which is different shades of grey is what we're talking about the other thing to think about is um, to try and shoot in with in mind with black and white. So thinking about black and white. So if you're going to do that, think about 
images that have high contrast because they make uh, usually the best black and whites. And so what you want to do is you frame it up with that and actually you'll find that in the middle of the day when the light is harsh and above you and often really quite bright, that's actually usually the best time to actually do your black and whites. So think about the middle of the day and think about looking at how you're going to turn an image into monochrome and you, you need to train your mind into thinking that. The other way is to turn your, uh, if you're shooting not in RAW, but you're shooting in JPEG, you can actually set your camera to be shooting in uh, monochrome or black and white. And so that means that when you look on the back of the screen, if you've got a, a screen to look back on, then um, you can look at your images in black and white uh, at the end. All right, I hope that helps and uh, stay safe uh, and stay well until the next time. Kia kaha. All across the world, we've got people realizing that they're more reliant than they thought they were on a, a group of workers who were pretty much invisible or were treated as if they were invisible the supermarket workers the cleaners and hospitals a whole range of of people do you think that we might come out of this thinking differently about how we relate to to, to those roles as a society uh, well, the optimist in me certainly hopes so um, and, and thinks that there's the potential for that. Um, as a matter of fact, we discussed this in Hong Kong uh, you know, six months ago, uh, long before any discussion of COVID virus. Um, but, um, you know, w workers, particularly on the low end of the pay scale, are, I think, pretty universally treated disrespectfully, but uh, particularly in, in you know, in, in my home country, the U.S., where they're not paid living wages, they don't have access to health care, um, any number of issues. Um, and now all of a sudden people are saying, oh, hey, thank God that somebody's doing these jobs that we so desperately need, you know, stocking the shelves and driving the trucks and um, and and checking us out at the grocery store. So um some of some of us um have have been fighting for for rights and and benefits for those people for years and i think everybody else is starting to understand now um why we've always said that any any job worth doing is worth being paid a living wage for if um if it's not worth paying them a living wage then then it shouldn't be a job you know but are we going to be able to afford to do that we're going to come out of this into worldwide recession of some sort is it a is that is that a sort of a luxury for us to do or is, is it a is it the starting point of what we do uh no I, I i don't think it's a luxury at all i think uh it's a necessity and um i mean so my 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 first graduate uh studies were in economics and i think any economist would tell you that uh a certain amount of distribution of wealth is uh, actually beneficial to the economy in the long run. Not so we have we have a case now where people like Bezos have billions and billions of dollars, which are, are, are numbers numbers that we can't really fathom. Like how you know how could you possibly live? Um, you know how could you possibly spend that much money? I mean, you couldn't in a lifetime. Um, so it's it's not a lack of money, and it won't be a lack of money when this virus is over. It's uh, a matter of how the money is distributed. Um, if we're going to allow in the U.S., for example, for billionaires to pay a near zero in taxes, 
for companies like Amazon to pay essentially nothing in taxes. Um, I, I, which I think last year, if I'm not mistaken, Amazon did pay zero dollars in U.S. taxes. Um, but then they'll be requesting and probably receiving bailout money from the government um, to to help them get through this hard time. All the while, they're laying off workers, um, which is ridiculous. Uh, what they need to do is, uh, you, you know, the government should require that companies pay people a living wage. That's just full stop. If, if you don't want to pay them a living wage, then you don't get to hire them. Um, and they'll realize that they need workers. Um, I, I heard a, a quote from a friend uh, earlier this week that, um, you know, with all the billionaires pushing everybody to go back to work, it's pretty obvious who makes the money. Right? The billionaires keep all the money, but it's the <laughs> workers who are actually making the money. Other, otherwise, all these people who've been telling us for years that they're, they're job creators, they're not creating any jobs. Where are they? Right? They're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and creating a bunch of jobs for all of us who are struggling. No, they're, they're just encouraging us all to go back to work so that they don't lose money. Well, that tells me that they're keeping, they're keeping the lion's share of the money, but everybody else is doing the lion's share of the work. And, uh, that has to change. So again, the optimist in me thinks that there's definitely the potential for that to change coming out of this. Um, I think people who who would not have agreed with that perspective before are are seeing it from a different side now. If you need a music suggestion right there, you, you yeah. can play uh, Utah Phillips. It's fantastic. Utah Phillips has a great song called Hallelujah, I'm a Bomb. And it's one of my favorite songs of all time. Oh, why don't you work like other folks do? How can I get a job when you're holding down two? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on the door. The lady said, Strambum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, Bob again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, I went to that house and I asked for some bread. The lady said, Strambum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, Bob. Hallelujah, Bob again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. There I am in Spookaloo, city of magic, city of life. Ensconced upon my front porch in broad daylight, long about noon, my rising time. Drinking something of a potable beverage, playing my guitar. Long after everybody else in the neighborhood has packed up their lunchbox and gone off down to Kaiser Aluminum to put in their shift. This enrages my neighbors. <laughs> One in particular across the road, little retired banker fella, been known to cannonball his rotundity across the road and stand there and publicly berate me for my sloth and indolence. <laughs> Why don't you get a job, he says. Some of you heard that, I'll bet. Now me being hit with the Socratic method fires back a question. Why? <laughs> Why, he says, taking aback. If you had a job, you could make three, four, five dollars an hour. I said, Why? Pursuing the same tack. Said, hell, you make three, four, five dollars an hour. You could have a savings account. Save up some of that money. I said, why? He said, well, you save up enough of that money, young fella. 
Pretty soon you never have to work another day in your life. Instead of hell, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> oh, I like my boss. He's a good friend of mine. That's why I'm starving out on the bread line. Had a new year, I'm a bum. Had a new year, bum again. Had a new year, give us a handout to revive us again. Yeah, and I like Jim Hill. He's a good friend of mine. Say, that's why I'm booming down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I guess pretty soon I'll be headed back to Spokane. Take up my task of wintering in, and I do a little uh, light farming or heavy gardening, whichever. <laughs> you know, that kind of... Farming is, is hard if you're in this traveling profession. And of course, when you sing like I do, you got to be ready to travel uh, with considerable alacrity. I got a Greyhound bus ticket in my back pocket all the time. But you see, quite often I'm not back in town in time for my plowing or my planting. That's awful. But now, one time I was sharing a platform in New York City, it was, with a bunch of high-powered labor politicos. Uh, it was a benefit for the farm workers, that's what it was. I remember Richard Chavez, Cesar's brother, was there. And so was Bella Abzug, former congresswoman from the state of New York. Remember her? Wonderful woman. I mean, she was loud, vociferous, big hats. She was yelling at that audience, righteous beef it was, about how the feds, the FBI, had been opening her mail for ever so long. Well, I knew the feds had been opening my mail for at least 20 years, reading all my personal radical mail, and it never bothered me because I figured them birds had to learn that stuff somewhere, and it might as, <laughs> might as well be from my mail. But then it occurred to me in my predicament, having the FBI open your mail might come in handy. I sent Sheila, my partner, a letter through the United States mail, and I said in it, for God's sake, don't plow up the backyard. That's where the guns are buried. <laughs> National Guard rolled up, dug up the whole backyard in time for me to come back and plant the damn thing. <laughs> oh, I went to a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the thing. And I knew I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bomb again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Whenever I get all the money I earn, the boss will be broke and to work he must turn. Hallelujah, bomb. Hallelujah, bomb again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. And why don't you save all the money you earn? If I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, bomb. Hallelujah, Bob, again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out. You revive us again. So some questions to end with. You might recognise some of these, Brian. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, well, um, my, my son graduating high school and getting into university was a big family success. Um, for me, finishing uh, my master's and starting my PhD um, and, and uh, yeah, just getting back into uh, academia. Is your son home from university? He is not. Uh, he 
he came home to Nagoya in uh, early March for a few weeks, but then he went back to or came back here to Tokyo, uh, where his university is. Um, I tried to get him to come stay with us during these trying times, but he said he was quite happy in the dorms. Which, <laughs> yeah, I, not not my choice, but he, he's he's a grown he's he's essentially a grown man. I guess I have to let him make those decisions himself. You know, we're writing a conversation, a, a book of these conversations. Oh, we are over on Sustainable Lens. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. So what's your superpower? Well, um, I, I, I guess um, I hope kindness. I've always hoped kindness. I guess if I could, if I could choose one superpower today, it would be uh, developing a cure for <laughs> coronavirus. Um, but that doesn't seem, I, I suppose everybody wants that superpower today, don't they? What do you think it's going to take to get kindness recognized as a thing which has the same import as what the stock market is doing in relation to this virus or what, the, you know, what in fact impact this is going to have on the economy? You know, every news report we hear on the TV or on, on the radio is followed up by this is what economists say is going to happen. What would what would what would an equivalent look like for kindness? Hmm, that's a very good question. Um, I've always thought that it's easier to be kind um, for everyone when things when when people are secure. Um, and part of that uh, is economics. You know, um, if we have a sense of economic security and stability, um, it's a lot easier to be kind and generous and uh, um, compassionate towards others. Um, when we're struggling ourselves, it's very difficult, you know. Um, so, for example, I mean, I, I think an act of kindness is to live sustainably and and to uh, you, you know to do what we can to uh, change the impact that we're having on the environment but it's very hard to do when you're poor and you're struggling you know when you go to the grocery store and the uh, you know the all-natural pesticide free vegetables are twice the price as the you know mass produced uh, you know um, corporate farming outfits then what do you do if, if you're struggling to get by um, it, it's hard to be principled when you're poor. So I think um, having an economic, having an economic policy that allows people the stability to be free, to be truly free and to be, um, to be secure in their own lives allows them then to go out and, um, you know, be, be more kind and compassionate to those around them. Uh, that's not to say that you know some of the kindest and and most compassionate people I've ever been around have been um, in some of the poorest communities I've ever been in, but um, it's just it, it's an uphill challenge. You know, when when you're fighting for your own survival, um, to then concern yourself with the survival of others. Um, so, I think the two are definitely tied together. It's um, it's important that we um, that we have an egalitarian society where all people are cared for and all people are provided for. Um, 
and when we have that, then we can more easily be kind to each other, if that makes sense. Is this an opportunity for a, a communal approach, a together approach, perhaps altruistic approach? Is, is this the, I'm thinking of the big wand fight at the end of Harry Potter, um, to, to do battle with the individualistic? I think it is. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, this has shown us on, on a number of levels that we're all in this together, um, you know, for better or for worse. Um, it tends to, we, we, people in general tend to, um, you know, kind of think of themselves and their family and their friend, you know, these kind of concentric circles of uh, people that they care about. Um, all the way up to the national level where, you, where I care about my nation and my people more than another nation. Um, and uh, this has shown us that, that, you know, something like the COVID-19 doesn't care about race or region or religion or economics or anything else. Um, it affects everyone. And so I definitely think there's the potential for um, a recognition that, um, you know, the $7 an hour store clerk um, is just as important, if not more important to the economy than the $7 billion, um, you know, hedge fund manager, or that, um, you know, Americans and New Zealanders and Africans and Japanese, like we, we all share the same challenges to a great extent, and um, we need to address them together. I'm pretty sure that when I asked you if you were an activist last time that you did say, you said yes, I think it was yes, absolutely, or yes, something quite strong. Mm. Are you getting an opportunity to, to are, do you still think that? And, and are you getting opportunities to, to be active, activist? Um, yes. Well, yes to the part that I hope that I'm still an activist. I still try to be an activist. Um it's a lot harder when you're socially distanced. Um, I, I don't think that posting on Facebook is, is a terribly activist thing to do, um, though, though showing solidarity is. Uh, so in whatever ways we can, showing solid, solidarity with people who are sick or, or otherwise impacted by this, people who are hurting financially because of this, um, people who are hurting emotionally um, or, or psychologically because they, they we can definitely show solidarity. Um, so yes, I, I I never feel like I'm as active as I should be, but I definitely see myself as being or hoping to be uh, always an activist in uh, fighting for for people's rights. So um, in whatever small way I can, yes, I'm trying to be an activist. Just trying to find new ways to be an activist from my own home. What changes do you think you've seen? in terms of social good changes at a social level rather than just at an individual level that might stick or that you hope might stick? Um, well, I think the uh, collective recognition that, um, that, that our society as a whole can slow down. Um, you know, yes, people are concerned, obviously, first and foremost, concerned about health in the face of this virus. But secondly, and almost as importantly, people are concerned about how we come out of this financially. 
Um, and I, I don't mean the stock market. I mean the, the average person on the street. Um, how are they going to survive this? How are they going to pay their rent, pay their bills when they can't go to work? I, I get that. And those are huge things. But I also think that a part of this is, you know, when we come out of this, we think, you know, actually, um, a lot of people who uh, have been working in offices for forever um, could actually work from home sometimes, which might um, which might improve their quality of life. Right. Um, some of the jobs that we always thought were just essential, maybe they're not. Um, and, and maybe the never ending cycles of consumption, um, you know, w- maybe we're realizing that actually we don't have to go shopping every weekend. We, we don't have to buy stuff all the time. Um, maybe, maybe the time that people spend in their homes will help them to look around and realize like, wow, I have an awful lot of stuff that I don't need. Maybe, um, a never ending cycle of accumulation and, and, um, consumption is, not necessary. Um, and I think that's an, an important recognition for us to address the um, issues around climate change. We, we cannot continue to just consume endlessly. And hopefully, I'm hoping that people are, again, that societies are collectively realizing that it's okay if we slow down a bit. And Lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I would say on the individual level, take this time to slow down. Take this time to, um, um, you know, to, to clean your house or to, to meditate or to, to stretch or to, you know, to do all the things that you've always thought you didn't have time to do. Um, you know, I know if you're in the U.S., even if you're working from home, a normal workday, normal hours, um, or or if you're in your home during a crisis trying to self-quarantine and trying to work, maybe it's a better way to say that than working from home. Um, but you're definitely saving time on your commute. I mean, that's extra time that you didn't have before. Um, you know, you can have lunch with your spouse or your kids or your dog or, or, or whatever, or just with yourself. Um, but yeah, take take the time to appreciate just slowing down a bit um, and check on, check on your neighbors, check on your friends, uh, you know, call somebody, FaceTime with somebody, um, you know, have, have a glass of wine over space, uh, over FaceTime or something and um, just connect with people, reconnect with people, you know, they're home. So they're going to answer. <laughs> <if you call. laughs> that's, last... that's, that's about the best I can do. That sounds great to me. Any thoughts, closing thoughts, Moira? Um, it's easy for us to assume that our young people are okay in all of this because they can continue to have their relationships um, in the digital world and that's their natural place, I suppose, in a lot of ways. But I look at um, the impact of this on my teens and I see the beginning of the struggle that they can't go and go to the beach, go for a walk along the river with their friends, um, even though they spend, it seems, all day uh, glued to their phones talking to them, it doesn't take away that human contact with their friends. So just uh, remember your teens. That's my message for today. Thank you. Agreed, yeah. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, brought to you by 
Sustainable Lens, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're on Otago Access Radio, oar.org.nz. We're live there, 3 o'clock on weekdays, streaming from there, podcast from there. We're also podcast on sustainablelens.org. Today I've been joined by Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and by Brian Acock from Tokyo. I'm Samuel Mann. That's Blowing Bubbles. I hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.